I looked at AI and I looked at humanity and I realized that right now all of humanity is prompting AI. All of humanity is training AI. 100 million people a week are teaching GPT to be smarter. We're all training AI now. We don't even know it. And I thought to myself, like, who's helping me be smarter? Who's really making me smarter? And I realized, why couldn't we create an AI to prompt humans? Why couldn't we create an AI to help humanity think more deeply, be more creative, democratize innovation, push the boundaries of imagination? And so I came up with this concept called reflective AI, which is basically at its most fundamental level, the opposite of all of the AI out there in that my AI is designed to train humans. I'm asking the questions. I'm not answering them. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Since this is an episode where we talk about AI, I thought I would do a little experiment. The reminder of this intro was actually typed into my editing program, The Script, and then converted into an AI-generated copy of my voice starting from the next sentence. Today is part two of my conversation with Stephen Klein, founder of Curioser.ai. If you haven't heard part one, the conversation is divided so that it doesn't matter which episode you listen to first. This way you can just continue listening and then go listen to part one later. For context, in part one, we discussed Stephen's career path and had a conversation around generally how to think about AI. In this episode, we talk about what he is doing with Curioser AI and then spend some time on what it means to be a crazy one, someone who is trying to look at the world differently. We pick up the conversation from the end of part one, where Stephen talks about how to talk to people about the impact that AI will have on the working world. And before I go, let me know what you thought of the AI voice. Now we go back to real voices. And if you thought this was a little creepy, I thought the same. Enjoy the episode. So I'd start at the beginning and not assume that anybody really understands anything. Because the more people understand something, it's inversely proportional to fear, right? The less I understand, the more frightened I am. And the more I understand, the less frightened I am. So that's where I'd start. And then you want to engage people in the process. Because quite frankly, it's really cool. Anybody that's got half a brain and thinks about this stuff ought to be just absolutely enamored and captivated by it. Because it is just the most fascinating development that humanity has ever created. Nothing has ever come close. And we're just at the beginning. This would be like tin cans in a string to where it's going to go when it becomes the internet. It's just the very beginnings. The second thing is that I would say to people that I don't know whether AI is going to replace you or your job or me. I don't know. I don't know. But you know what? You can control what you can control and you can't control what you can't control. So just knock it off, get as smart as you can, learn as much as you can. And the one thing I know for sure is that AI will definitely replace people who don't know how to use AI faster than it will replace people who know how to use AI. So I may not be able to outrun the bear, but I can outrun you. And so in a way, 
you better start learning about it and you better start looking at it as a tool. So let's say I'm teaching my class at Berkeley. I say, you know, marketing in a few years is going to be different, but it's going to be a lot like just how many tools do you know how to use? How well do you use them? Just learn the tools. Like if you, if you really know how to use a hammer and a drill and a screwdriver, you're going to be a lot better a builder than somebody who still uses their hands and their teeth. <laughs> so that's kind of how I look at it right now. I'm fascinated by it. I love it. I've never seen anything more interesting in my life. And I would just love to help the world understand it more because I don't find it scary at all. So with all that, how does Curiouser.ai plan to use AI? What's the goal of the company and what are you building? I looked at AI and I looked at humanity and I pulled my camera back to the moon to look at Earth. And I realized that right now all of humanity is prompting AI. All of humanity is training AI. 100 million people a week are teaching GPT to be smarter. That's what's happening. Everybody who drives a Tesla is teaching Elon Musk's AI how to be smarter. We're all training AI now. We don't even know it. And I thought to myself, like, who's helping me be smarter? Because I don't think it's making me much smarter. Maybe it's making my life easier. It's certainly making me, you know, I can get more done maybe faster. But who's really making me smarter? And I realized, why couldn't we create an AI to prompt humans? Why couldn't we create an AI to help humanity think more deeply, be more creative, democratize innovation, push the boundaries of imagination? And so I came up with this concept called reflective AI, which is basically at its most fundamental level, the opposite of all of the AI out there in that my AI is designed to train humans. I'm asking the questions. I'm not answering them. So I'm Socrates teaching Plato. I'm McKinsey coming in and helping the corporation. I'm an advertising agency coming in and helping build marketing programs for a brand because it all begins and ends with questions. You have the knowledge. And so the AI is designed and being trained extensively by a lot of very smart people to be a conversationalist that helps the user explore their own thoughts, think more deeply, solve problems. And ultimately, I believe scale genius. I believe that there's a genius in all of us. And so that's at a fundamental level what I'm doing different. But because I do know a little bit about business and I realized that I do need to make a living, I needed to come up with a use case. And the use case we've come up with is that I love entrepreneurs. I love crazy people. I love people that have the courage to try and change the world because it's insanity. There's a lot of easier ways to make a living. And so I thought about taking my reflective AI concept and applying it to anybody that wants to bring innovation into the world, anybody that wants to introduce something that's new to the world, to improve the world, to make the world different, better. And so basically what I'm specifically doing from the mission short-term tactical perspective is building an AI that 
entrepreneurs, founders, anybody that wants to build something or introduce something innovative or new can use to help them understand how to articulate, tell their story to the world so they can take this idea that's in their imagination, turn it into a contextual story that will then enable them to garner resources, garner momentum, then bring them to the go-to-market, then bring them to product market fit and walk them through that entire process so that the people in the world that want to bring problem-solving innovation can do it without having to have the budget to go to an ad agency or McKinsey or get the professional help. So turning it around in another way, I want to make Steve Jobs a CMO of every startup. So I'm training my my AI to be a Steve Jobs that's affordable, that you can sit in a bar with and talk to and he or she will help you solve your problems. That's kind of what we're doing. It's called Curiouser.ai because I'm inspired by Alice in Wonderland, not because it's a children's story and not because it is a story that I happen to love, but because for me, it's a story about the world as it exists and that it's the story of a human being traveling through this fantastic world being asked impossible questions that no one has answers to. And that to me is what life is. And that is to be with businesses. We're just always confronting questions we don't have answers to. And if we keep going, we, we, we can be successful. And if we don't, we won't be. But so I'm inspired by the whole idea of exploration and that search for answers. That's kind of what this is all about. That is fabulous. A, a couple of quick things. First of all, I want to clarify when I was saying that you found this at a point in your life when other people are playing golf. It wasn't to mean that you should retire and go play golf. It was actually to give hope to people that if they keep searching and don't give up, they will find at some point what truly inspires them and what brings a lot of meaning to their work. And it's never too late in life. The second thing, just talking about this continuous search that you've had in your life, you took a year off at some point from the corporate world and uh, went and taught into public schools. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? My wife and I moved to Philadelphia. I'm not sure why. Well, partly because I went to Penn, grad school at Penn that has a very good secondary education program tied with Harvard, actually. And I taught in a urban public high school for a year. I taught freshmen and sophomores, underprivileged, rough. And I triangulated that knowledge with what I had learned back at school in that they were all brilliant. They were all brilliant. And I started realizing, you know, you know, how many Mozarts are out there that have never been given a piano? I think it's that simple. You know, what if Mozart didn't have a freaking piano or Lewis Carroll didn't have a freaking pencil, you know, or Einstein wasn't in the patent office looking at clocks. It's all the same stuff. Or Elon Musk wasn't beat up when he was younger. Like, so I realized that what I could do for them was do what I wish somebody had done for me, which is just teach them how to learn. Don't shove facts in there. Like, who cares about all, a lot of these facts, right? But give them the tools that they need to learn 
how to learn and grow and evolve so they can be self-taught and they can grab knowledge and grow and evolve and it's fun. And so I created a curriculum that I kind of called superpowers. And I told them I'm going to turn them all into superheroes. And I basically, believe it or not, used a lot of Harvard grad school course thinking and brought it to freshmen and sophomores in an urban public high school, and they thrived. For example, Amy Cuddy, a professor at Harvard, uh, has maybe it's the number one, it's certainly one of the top TED Talks ever about you know how body language can impact who we are, how we are, how we're perceived, the imposter syndrome, how you can fake it, not till you make it, but you can fake it till you become it. And so when the world tells you that you are not as good as them or who they think that they are, that's bullshit. And so we spent time studying that video and that course. And I think it was empowering to them. And then I talked, I said, let's learn about macroeconomics. Let's learn about the capital markets because you know what? That's going to be a good thing for you to know. I, I said, if you guys can put like $30 away a week, and I know that's a lot of money, but if you can do that for 30 years and you buy a Vanguard index fund <laughs> that's low cost and you do that for 20 or 30 years, you'll be very wealthy. And they look at me like, what are you talking about? And so I went through how the capital markets work. It's not that hard. You know, and, and we pick brands that they love, brands that they knew, Nike, whatever. And so I just like, it was just great. I loved it. I loved it. You've mentioned a couple of times Steve Jobs and the crazy ones. Jobs is my hero. Yeah. When did you realize you were a crazy one? Well, now I know that I always was. Right. But I didn't know when did I become meta aware? When did I become aware of myself in that respect. I think it really took me a very long time to really actually learn that might have been in my 30s or 40s. But learning it, embracing it, and then thriving on it, and then weaponizing it are all different things. So I think that I really fundamentally became aware of how it's a superpower quite recently. Maybe, you know, you know, my fifties. Because the world does everything in its power to keep you from recognizing that. Because it's very difficult to get by and be successful unless you conform. Right? There's a NASA study that was done where they studied five to seven-year-old children and tested them. And 98 plus percent of these five to seven-year-old children tested positive for creative genius. And then they followed that cohort longitudinally through time. And by the time they were, I don't know, 30s, 40s, like one and a half percent of them were tested the same positive, right? Why? Well, I guess I don't think it went anywhere. You know, I don't think, you know, they sold their genius to the devil. It just got buried and, and, and it got 
beat up and beat down and you learn not to make mistakes and you're in school and you try to guess the right answer and give people what they want. And you realize that if you ask why the sky is blue too many times, somebody will tell you to shut up, even though why is the sky blue? That's a pretty damn good question. And so I think it's difficult to embrace that and still figure out ways to make a living. So when I was talking about being a crazy one, what I was referring to is looking at the world in a way that is different than the way that the majority of other people do. And that may lead to being a genius if you're Steve Jobs, or, you know, to just maybe being a regular guy who doesn't necessarily fit in the traditional structures like me. So what I'm really interested, though, is to hear about the shift that happened in how you related to the world from the moment that you consciously embraced this perspective and embraced the fact that you were you know, a crazy one. You were looking at the world differently. What are some of the most important things that changed for you? Three things I can specifically point to would be Steve Jobs and studying him very, very deeply and understanding at an extraordinarily deep level what that was all about. Uh, For example, the fact that the only book he cared about in life was the autobiography of a yogi, that that was his operating manual at Apple. And that that was the only book that he had distributed at his funeral to everybody that attended his funeral. And that was the only book on his iPad. Why Autobiography of Yogi? Well, because he operated at a very fundamental, deep first principles level. And that's where he derived his power. And then I started looking at all sorts of entrepreneurs and all sorts of visionaries. And I realized they are all doing that. They're operating at a deeper level than anyone else. And they're embracing that. And then I realized that in order to do that, you really have to expect resistance. And the more resistance you get, the more excited you should be. And you turn that around because if it isn't really hard and people don't think you're really stupid, what's the point? Because then you know you're onto something. (laughs) Really. And so then I heard an interview that Elon Musk gave. I know Elon Musk is a complicated guy, and there's a lot of good reasons not to like the guy, but this was pre-Twitter X. And he was asked what in the world scares him the most about SpaceX and Tesla in terms of the people, the engineers, what, what keeps him up at night, what really terrifies him. And he said that it was the fact that He knows he has brilliant people surrounding him, but that he also knows that many of them are spending their time optimizing things that should never have existed in the first place. And I realized that that's kind of what I've been doing. I take an assumption that isn't necessarily the right one, and then I just get very good at refining it, testing it, spinning it. And I started thinking about how many people, particularly in the marketing and branding world, do that. And so the pieces sort of came together. And I realized that what I was doing was absolutely the right thing to do, that I have no doubt. Now, I may not be the guy to pull it off, but that there's fundamental truth in what I'm pursuing here in that I can help people be different and be successful. That when Steve Jobs said, think different, 
95% of the people in the world get that wrong. That wasn't an advertising slogan. That was the secret code to what you need to do to be successful and to operate in a big visionary way. You've got to think different, right? And when he said, here's to the crazy ones, he wasn't being funny. And so I realized it was all about childlike wonder and courage and having the courage of your convictions. And so I I realized I started having power. And now I, I feel like if I'm talking to a venture capitalist and I'm trying to raise capital and they can't get me in focus and they think that I'm kind of, you know, off the wall or naive or whatever, um, I can look at them and say, you know what? That's fine. That's fine. But I guarantee you one thing with all due respect. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care where you were born. I don't care what your race is. I don't care your gender, your sexual orientation, your religion. If you think when Alice asked, who in the world am I? Ah, that's a great puzzle is a silly question. I'll bet you that when your life is over and you've got five minutes left to live, that'll be the only question you ask yourself. So if you're so smart, why would you wait till it's over to ask yourself the only question that matters in the past tense and not start thinking about it now? And that's the same question any entrepreneur asks themselves. That's great. I think this is a good point to stop this portion of the conversation. I want to go back Two questions. If people want to come and learn more about Curiouser AI, is Curiouser.ai, correct? Yeah. Where are you in the process and when do you expect people to be able to use it? And then what other places can they find you if they want to find you online? Well, thank you for asking that, actually. I feel like I'm you know, doing a tour and I just wrote a book and you're letting me hold up my book and buy my book. We are early stage. There are 22 people in my company right now, 19 are women. I believe that we have the only AI or tech company that is virtually entirely women in the world. We are starving artists. We're all working hard because we believe in what we're doing. The person who makes the most money in my company makes like $24,000 a year. And that was somebody that was making close to a million dollars a year. So we're early we're starving. We're having more fun than we've ever had in our lives. We're working harder than we've ever worked. So we're still pre-seed. We're still pre-product. We're still building. But uh, there is a website called Curiouser.ai. That's the website. There is a, a LinkedIn page where you can read lots and lots of blogs that we've written, I've written. And we believe we're going to have our coming out party at some point in the next month or two. And uh, we're going to need to raise capital, just like everyone else in the world. I've gotten by on friends and family up until now. I have literally genuinely seen the kindness, the faith, and the belief in people that I love and I'm grateful for. And that's how I've gotten this far, people who have just believed in it and have taken a risk on me. And so, yeah, there's a website. There's some information up on LinkedIn. The goal is to have our MVP done by February 29th. I hope to have it in market by March or April, which probably means 15 betas. So it's getting real here. Half the company are engineers. 
and technology people, I am the stupidest person in the company, which makes me the happiest person in the world. There are a lot of smart people in my company. I mean, really smart. We're still early. So I'm sorry, we keep extending this conversation, but you said something. Was it a casual happening that all employees except two are women? Or was there an intentional strategy in that? And, and, and what was the thinking behind that? One of my favorite stories in the world, it's a very short story, is David Foster Wallace, uh, a beautiful writer, wrote Infinite Jest, died several years back, tells this really quick story about there are these two fish, two young fish swimming in the ocean on a very beautiful day sun shining and this older fish comes swimming in the opposite direction and says water sure is beautiful today huh fellas the two younger fish they keep going and one younger fish turns to the other one and says what the hell is water and so i asked myself what the hell is water in technology and business and in the world and i realized that there's a lot of smart people out there in the world smarter than me and there's a lot of hard-working people in the world probably work harder than me though i'm not sure how But I'm not sure there are people that have a unique perspective. I believe deeply in perspective and that perspective is ultimately a competitive weapon. And that one of the best ways to integrate perspective into a culture and an organization is through diversity. And by getting different sorts of people, different backgrounds, Together, you can actually create competitive advantage that, that solves business problems. You can do it for the right reasons. And it's actually a beautiful experience. And as long as you have deeply held shared values, it works. So while it wasn't necessarily intentional to create a majority woman company, it was definitely intentional to bring people in from all different parts of the world, all different ages, ethnic groups, religions. I think in 20 people, there are 12 religions in my company, I think when I counted last. So it's just a wonderful group of people who have all bonded around values. And I think that it positions us very, very well for winning in the business world, quite frankly. So that's kind of how we ended up where we are. Yeah, I also have to imagine, given how notoriously unfriendly the tech industry is to women, having a place that makes it safe and comfortable for women to work probably gives you access to some superior talent that is not necessarily maximized or leveraged in other environments. Yeah, and I don't want to sit back in judgment of tech or Silicon Valley or any other companies, but from my experience, it hasn't always been a great environment for women. Even if it's not necessarily overtly sexist, there's this sort of implied, I don't know, it's just harder to have your voice heard potentially. I don't even know what it is. I don't really care. But I have a 23-year-old daughter, and I did kind of want to build an environment that she'd be comfortable in because I know she's as smart as any guy that's ever walked the planet Earth. And so there is some of that as, as well. And it comes from the right place. Great. Do you still have a little bit of time? I have all the time in the world. Great. I have the three, what I call the personal question. The first one is, what is a hobby or a passion outside of your professional life? And how has that influenced your work? I guess learning, growing, trying to make myself smarter every day, doing something every day, 
that I learned from. So it's podcasts, it's books, it's you, Dino. I find that by teaching, I learn. My class at Berkeley teaches me a lot. So I guess try, my hobby is trying to evolve, grow, learn. And by doing that, I feel like I can kind of stay young. So that's my hobby. All right. Second question this is my favorite question of the whole podcast. We all have expressions. Every era has expressions that are so overused that at some point they lose every meaning. What is the one that drives you crazy? The one that drives me the most crazy, I don't know if it's an expression, but it's how so many people talk about innovation and creativity, but they just literally don't have a clue what that means in the sense that it always means extreme risk. And so I just, it makes me crazy that people claim to be innovative, but yet don't want to stand apart from the crowd. And then when you do stand apart from the crowd and you do try to actually bring something innovative into the world, they kind of gather around you and tell you all the reasons why it doesn't make sense. That, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Perfect. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can choose if you want to go the food for the body route, a recipe or a drink or something that nourishes your body right now. Or if you go the soul route, a book, a piece of music, a piece of art, anything creative that right now speaks to you in a particular way. I, I sound so cliche and I apologize, but I love going back to ancient wisdom. So I love reading Eastern philosophy. I love reading Western philosophy. I love to read philosophy I can't understand, like Spinoza or Wittgenstein, because I think that the fundamentals and the archetypes are more important now than they've ever been. And I think we need to combine that wisdom with what is we're doing these days, or we're going to lose it all. Fabulous. Stephen, it was great. Thank you so much for all your wisdom, all your insights. It was great to have you on the podcast. Dino, I have tremendous respect for you and what you do. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Hello, AI-generated text-to-voice Dino here. Real Dino got a little lazy and decided he didn't want to read the whole outro, so he gave me a little part here. I just want to point out that I did not appreciate him calling me creepy at the end of the intro, but I can understand his feelings. I want to remind you to go listen to part one of the interview with Stephen if you missed it, episode 126. And now I am getting yanked and you are going back to real Dino. Thank you for your patience with my silliness and for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may like it and tell them that they should listen to it. Also, you may have listened to every single episode so far, in which case I'm really thankful. But most likely you haven't, so go find a few others and listen to them. If you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. If you listen on a platform that allows ratings and reviews like Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or GoodPods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. Stay tuned because after the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information on the episode and all the links, go to the website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Please make sure you follow the podcast on whatever social platform you're on. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is 
at AL4EDP with the letter D. And on Facebook, you can look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solution. It was recorded remotely with Swatcast and edited partially with the script. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Willens on bass. Steven has chosen Alice in Wonderland as a symbol for his company. So here is a song by Susan Cattaneo that also uses the imagery from Alice in Wonderland as a starting point. Although with a slightly different meaning, it's called Alice in Wonder. Enjoy. Sun